Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I am your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have the one and only Mike Israel. Mike has been on this podcast multiple times, and he is full of so much information, and he does a really good job at breaking down scientific research in not only an informative and practical way, but a hilarious way. He is one of the most punny guys I've ever met. He has tons of analogies that he's constantly going on with, um, and it's actually quite fucking hilarious to listen to him while learning about some very educative stuff. So I'm really excited about him coming on the podcast over and over again. And uh, we've repurposed some of his content because it's always some of the best content we put out because he gets straight to the point. He answers questions really well, and he has a lot of science to back up his claims. Mike Israel holds a PhD in sports physiology, and he is currently the head science consultant for Renaissance Periodization. Renaissance Periodization is a very well-known company for what they do in the fitness educative space. Uh, I've had almost every one of their top people on the podcast. You guys are probably familiar with them, even if you didn't hear about Renaissance Periodization before us. But today we're going to dive into hypertrophy, specifically the fundamentals and the basics of hypertrophy. So when it comes to building muscle, training, nutrition, all that, what do you need to know? What are the things that you cannot live without when it comes to building muscle and achieving maximal hypertrophy? That's what we're going to lay out today. Mike's going to give us the basics, the fundamentals, and teach us the science of the foundations. So without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Mike Israel from Renaissance Periodization. All right, Mike. So the first thing I want to touch on today, um, I've heard a lot of people talk about this kind of concept in their own way, but I'm interested on your theory or the way you approach this, but is it's really the hierarchy or the order of importance when it comes to training for hypertrophy. Like what do you place as the most important things when you're laying out a program or deciding how to train an individual? Um, and how do you order those as you go into that? Yeah, the number one thing is specificity. You sort of have to pick which muscle groups you want to train. You know, all around training is fine, but most people sort of want to get the pecs bigger, biceps or quads or whatever. And then the specificity really dictates, you know, exercise selection for the most part in hypertrophy training. And the next thing you want to put together is making sure that the training is specific to what you want to grow, but then overloading difficult enough, right? And overload has a ton of context to it. Um, it makes sure that you're training heavy enough, uh, close enough to failure and with a sufficient amount of volume. And all those three can be discussed separately. Those are probably the main three factors of overload. And then uh, lastly of the big three pieces is fatigue management to make sure you have ways of detecting fatigue, understanding fatigue in your program, and occasionally, so first of all, not accumulating too much unnecessary fatigue, and second of all, letting fatigue come down every now and again so that you can sort of restart a program and accumulate uh, more stimulative training while keeping tabs on fatigue. So I'd love if you can get into that last part a little bit. You talk a lot about the stimulus fatigue ratio, and I believe you, pretty sure you invented that concept or that idea. I guess, yeah. Um, and it's great. Can you can you explain to the listeners what that is and, and how to utilize that inside their own training? For sure. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio is just the concept in which, you know, when you're picking exercises or techniques or training plans, you want to make sure that, okay, the whatever you're doing is stimulating muscle growth. That's number one, right? If it's not stimulating muscle growth, why are you doing your muscle growth plan? Could be some really interesting reasons for that. Most of them pretty off base. So 
A stimulus is the degree to which something likely causes muscle growth. So for example, if you did a set of 10 with your 100 rep max, you would be 90 reps away from failure. The tension's not uh, difficult enough. If it's just one set, then gee, you know, the stimulus is really, really low. So uh, being uh, making sure to pick exercises and ways of training and techniques that are very stimulative is very important. It's the number one most important thing. But that's not the only part of the picture. At least another part of the picture is the fatigue costs. So for example, people say, okay, sort of two ways potentially you can squat among many. One is to do um, squats uh, full depth, big stretch on the quads, uh, put a heel in your shoe or weightlifting shoes, stay very upright. And what that does is it reduces how much loading you have through your spine and it makes sure a ton of loading and stretch and tension occurs to the quads. So it's really, really great quad stimulator. And then some people would say, okay, what about the celebrator squatting? We squat only halfway down, push our butt back a little more, use more of our back, but we can lift more weight by doing both of those. So now we can use maybe one and a half times or two times as much weight. We still get, you know, if we do the same number of reps, uh, we still get the same effect. And I would say it's actually a very similar effect. Um, and so people say, so if I can get big legs squatting halfway down, why do I want to bother squatting all the way down? Well, here's the deal. Because you have to use double the weight and weight is a huge factor for fatigue, especially if it's a lot of weight through your spine and use a lot of other muscles, not just the quads, but way more glutes, way more hams, way more back. Um, squatting halfway down, tilted more backwards, perhaps at a lower bar position, can roll your quads just as much. The stimulus is the same, sort of in the numerator of the equation, but in the denominator right below, the fatigue is higher, right? And if you have an equation like, you know, if you have a one unit of stimulus and one unit of fatigue, that equals one. If you have one unit of stimulus, but three units of fatigue is a very high fatigue on the bottom, that's a third. That's a much smaller number, and thus the stimulus to fatigue ratio is smaller. All that math aside, what does that mean? Well, for every amount of stimulus you're getting, you're paying that much more of a fatigue cost, which in any one training session probably doesn't matter. But the thing is that fatigue is cumulative, so over many training, fatigue sums up. And over the week and over for sure the mesocycle or the month of training. So if we know that fatigue sums up like that, then we know that, okay, if we get a really good stimulus but pay a small fatigue cost, the sum at the end of a whole month will be maybe this much. If we pay a really big fatigue cost, the sum could be here. And our need to deload might be right here. So you might be able to train six weeks progressively with exercises that have a good stimulus to fatigue ratio, like deep squats where you might only be able to train three weeks progressively before needing a deload from uh, uh, exercises that have a poor stimulus to fatigue ratio, such as half squats or something like that. And in addition to that, many types of fatigue, for example, joint and connective tissue stress, which is definitely a type of fatigue, they're cumulative over your lifespan. That is, you know, if you put your joints and connective tissues under enough stress, the chance of injury and or just chance of chronic uh, sort of disruption, inflammation becomes significant, right? It just becomes more and more significant the longer you do something. So at the end of the day, you're sort of in a situation where you're like, okay, um, if I could get the same stimulus from an exercise, uh, but pay half the fatigue cost, in another way to put it is when I squat all the way down with good technique, my knees don't bother me nearly as much as if they do as if I cut my squats halfway down, but have to concomitantly use double the weight. Um, then maybe it's not that you know within a month or a year, even 10 years, that I'm going to gain more muscle squatting all the way down. It's maybe because after 15 years, I'll still be training and gaining muscle, 
with full squats, but with partial squats, I might already have my knees so beat up that I can't even do this anymore, right? And especially when people think of a long-term results, most of us who exercise want to continue to do so until the end of our days. And also if you're planning a career in something serious like bodybuilding or powerlifting, something else or sports, um, you want to make sure the stimulus to fatigue ratio is as good as possible because you don't want to needlessly pay these crazy, crazy fatigue costs. You want to have your, your sort of, um, your eye on both line items. The, probably the best analogy, here you go, here's just one of your analogies that, uh, uh, that you seem to think are totally stupid. Um, you know, the fatigue cost uh, is stimulus at a restaurant analogy. The stimulus is how tasty the food is and how much food you get. Um, and the fatigue cost is analogous to the price that you're asking for to pay for menu items. Now, when you get a cheeseburger, your local shop, um, and it costs you $2. It's a pretty decent cheeseburger, but it only costs $2. But that's a pretty good ratio of how good it is to how much it costs. You know, if someone said, listen, I've got this guy, there's this restaurant down the street, this guy's a world, world-class chef, and the cheeseburger is just better. It's like notably better. And you're like, wow, okay, like how much is it? He's like, well, it's $20. Like, I'm not paying $20 for a cheeseburger. You must be out of your mind. That cheeseburger better sock me in the face off that plate. That, you know, you might, and you, might, you might get there. This cheeseburger is like notably just better. Every single way it's better. But is it $18 better? Man, maybe not. And if you really like cheeseburgers and you're a normal person without a crazy budget, you might do something where like you mostly just eat the normal cheeseburgers and have two or three of them, extra fun, and pay like four or six bucks instead of paying $40 for these two crazy cheeseburgers and getting, yeah, it's a great experience and maybe every now and again there's context for it, but it's just not something you turn to. So if we talk about exercise technique or exercise selection, we're going to want the exercises to give us the best bang for our buck, to give us the most stimulus with the least fatigue. Now, that's not to say that we ever miss the forest for the trees and forget about absolute stimulus altogether. Look, you grow muscle not because of the stimulus to fatigue ratio, but how much total stimulus you have. So in a sense, if an exercise is a great stimulus to fatigue ratio, but it stimulates you this tiny little bit, you have to do such an inordinate amount of it. It just may, may take forever to do. So at some point, you're also concerned with just raw stimulus. But if an exercise is a comparable raw stimulus to other ones, but it has a lower fatigue, that's how you know you're in money. So for the analogy there is like, you know, you may go to the, this burger place yourself to get $2 burgers. You might not take a date there, but it, you know, if you want to take a date for a burger, you might go to this $20 burger place, but maybe you shouldn't go to the $100 burger place because look, both burgers are excellent, but one of them is five times more expensive. Just the same thing. So anytime you pick an exercise or way to train, definitely think about stimulus first. How much is this going to grow muscle? But also think about fatigue because it definitely counts. It makes a lot of sense. It's, it's... <laughs> It always cracks me up when I listen to yours. So I, I came and saw you speak in Philadelphia and I think I laughed for 45 minutes straight just at your oh analogies boy. that you learned were nothing at all. I'm sure I taught nothing. <laughs> I learned a lot actually. It was really good. Um, but it was just hilarious the way you're really good presenter in that sense. Um, Thank that you, you so do that. When we're talking about uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio, uh, is there a way, not necessarily like a formula, but is there a way that people can really start to analyze or set up their training to know what exercises they should be using as like a template-like format? Totally. There's definitely the beginning of such a discussion. So um, one thing you want to do is separate intellectually stimulus and fatigue in your mind, right? So just treat stimulus differently, fatigue differently. So on the stimulus side, how do we sort of proxy? How do we estimate stimulus? It's really hard. You don't have like a DNA analysis machine at your house. You're not going to do like taking muscle fragments out. So you're not going to know direct muscle growth. We have some proxies from literature on how muscles grow that are easily detectable. So for example, we can look at uh, what's called the mind-muscle connection. And it's not just like feeling your biceps contract. You can do that with no weight at all. There's no indicator of a stimulus. 
it's at low reps and moderate reps feeling a distinct tension through the target muscle. Like if someone has you do a new kind of bench press and they're like, do you feel that in the packs? You're like, no, I gotta be honest. I feel a ton of tension in my triceps and front delts, but I don't feel anything happening in my pecs. That's not a good sign, right? So um, tension for the uh, low rep ranges and moderate rep ranges and for the higher rep ranges and the moderate to some extent, as you get close to failure, is the metabolite burn, is the lactic acid burn in the target muscle that you want? So if someone's like, oh man, this new lunge variation will destroy your glutes. And every time you get closer to failure, you just feel a burn in your quads. You feel literally nothing in your glutes. And it's not a really good sign that there's a high degree of stimulus to your glutes, right? But if something like when you do an exercise like flies, for example, for chest in low reps, tears your chest to bits, like you literally feel this crazy tension pulling across the whole muscle. And if you do it for high reps, you just feel this crazy burn that's just incredibly painful in your pecs yeah that's a that's a good first sign right so you can rank all exercises for any given muscle group like okay we're trying to train lats which exercises for lats really let me feel tension in my lats and really generate a burn at high reps okay so that's number one number two is the pump if after multiple sets of an exercise you have a really small pump man you know there's just no evidence that you're actually disrupting uh, and engaging that those target musculature that you want, right? But on the other hand, if you have a really awesome pump with very few sets, you're probably doing something in there. The pump has been shown directly to cause hypertrophy as well, and is probably correlated with metabolite sequestration and tension generated in the target muscle. So it's a pretty good sign, right? The, it's not the be all and end all, but I'll tell you this: you know, if you're doing sets of 12 to 15 and hamstring curls, you don't have any pump in your hamstring. I don't know if that setup is a great hamstring exercise for you, but if you change the position of the machine, maybe a longer stretch, maybe hold the peak contraction, all of a sudden now you're getting gnarly pumps. That's probably a good thing. So we have mind muscle connection, we have pump, we have one, one last one, uh, muscle disruption, local muscle disruption. You have to, after some number of working sets, enough to stimulate, feel some distinct disruption. And this disruption happens in essentially sort of like three ways. Way one is you have a sense in the muscle, a perceptive sense detecting the actual muscle that something is uh, off, right? Like for example, if you try to stand up out of a chair or you try to walk down some stairs after a huge quad session, you're like, well, my quads are not operating like they're supposed to. If this happened to me just waking up out of bed, I would immediately call the emergency room. Something's wrong with my quads. They tend, maybe they're cramping, maybe the stretch feels really weird, Maybe the muscular coordination isn't there. They were so like, oh my God, like I can barely even stand. So that's number one. Like for example, if you do a bunch of curls and uh, someone's like, how do your biceps feel? You know, you point to your bicep, you're like, dude, I, bro, like something's off. And someone's like, hey, do you want to do rows? You're like, bro, are you kidding me? I can barely use my arms. Like that's a really good sign. The second sort of subcomponent of that is a loss of local performance ability. If you are just smashed your pecs and you hit a bench PR right after, you didn't smash anything. There's no evidence of the fact that you disrupted anything or really provided a big stimulus because your performance never went down, right? The ultimate example of that, not all of this should be taken to extremes because there is such a thing as too much stimulus. But look, if you have really crazy stimulus, it's hard to get out of a chair because your quads are so weak. And that's a fundamentally, look, it might be a bad sign if you did too much, but it sure as hell is a sign that you did not do not enough. You know what I mean? Like you did enough. You might have done too much, right? So weakness in the target muscle is a really, really good sign. And then lastly, soreness. And that doesn't just mean delayed onset muscle soreness. It means different kinds of soreness. It can be like a, like a, like a weird perception of kind of, you know, like it feels like there's like these like adhesions, it, it's not literally adhesions, but it feels like your muscle is like a little too tight in like even an hour after training. You're like something in there, like my range of motion for biceps is just not what it used to be. 
all the way to a mild soreness, all the way to delayed onset soreness that's pretty intense. None of, none of those are better than one another, but you, it's probably good that you got something going. I'll put it to you this way. If you think you smashed your biceps, but two hours later, someone's like, how do your biceps feel? You're like, do, 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 100%, like, man, you probably just didn't, right? So those are the stimulus factors. What's the answer for how much of those you want? Well, barring aside the conversation that there is too much of a good thing, right? And it comes with excessive damage if you do too much stimulus, but put to you this way, you gotta be checking some boxes. You gotta be checking the boxes of uh, mind-muscle connection, at least to some extent. And if not, you gotta be checking the pump box and the disruption box a lot. So for example, if you don't get a pump at all in your hamstrings doing stiff-legged deadlifts, okay, fine, who the hell gets pumps in their hamstrings? How do you even tell, right? You had better during stiff-legged deadlifts to be like, if someone's like, hey, do you feel a high tension in these sets of eight? You're like, bro, are you kidding me? I think my hamstrings are falling off my body. Like, this is tension. Okay, great. Big check mark. You look at the pump and you're like, okay, pump, no pump, whatever. And then you look at um, the muscle disruption. Like, you try to curl your leg to your ass and you go, oh, oh, shit, 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 I'm cramping, I'm cramping, I'm cramping. You're like, that's a really good sign. And then two days later, you're super sore. Like, you got 99 problems, but a stimulus is not one of them, right? It may be you did too much. So you can have, you know, concomitantly, you can have like not a whole lot of mind-muscle connection. Like some people just may be really bad at, um, you know, telling whether muscles are active. You ask a beginner client, like, hey, how are your pecs on this exercise? Do you feel the tension? And they're like, oh, sure. You're like, point to your pecs. And they're like, oh, here? And you're like, okay, <laughs> never mind. So who knows, right? But you ask them like, Sometimes you can even visually inspect a pump, right? Or you ask them, they're like, oh, I for sure have a pump. I didn't know what you mean by tension or whatever, but I have a pump. And then later, you know, even exercises that don't accumulate lactate, stuff like a deadlift again, even for higher reps, you might never feel a burn in your hamstrings, but you still get that soreness or whatever. And you might not ever have any soreness or even any extreme weakness in a muscle after the session. But if you felt a crazy amount of tension through it, or you felt a crazy burn and you got a gnarly pump, man, you're well on your way. And just the same way, all three, at least a little bit of those means you're good to go. More of them usually just mean more stimulus. Does that, does that all add up so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I would, I would ask with that is just like in muscle damage in general, I know that more and more stuff's coming out saying muscle damage might not be the end all be all for muscle growth. But um, do you believe it's a proxy to say that, okay, you're creating enough stimulus? Like if, if you're not sore yes. ever at all, then yes. that's probably a bad sign. Um, uh, um, okay. Maybe, maybe, but I can answer that question much more specifically. If you struggle to make gains in a muscle and it's never been sore, exploring higher volumes and more intensity is probably a good idea <laughs> because you certainly have never trained it too much uh, and, and not certainly, very likely, right? I'll put it you this way. If you're consistently sore in an overlapping weight, which means you're still sore when you train it next and you're not making gains, there's a very good chance you're, you're training too much and that more training is probably not the answer because like, Cody, how would that even work? Someone's like, man, I don't think you're training your delts enough. You're like, my delts are so every fucking waking hour that, can I swear in here? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, sweet. Like every fucking waking hour and waking day, my, my delts are sore. And they're like, oh, you got to train them harder. Like, shut up. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Like, of course, so I'm going to dip more into my recovery resources to do more damage, to fix the damage for no reason. Damage may have a causative role. We don't know yet um, in, in uh, muscle growth, but we know that without a lot of damage, we can still grow muscle. But the thing is, it, 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 you know, DOMS can work in another interesting way. Uh, it can work in a um, kind of like a canary in the coal mine way where you do an uh, exercise and you want to see like, is this exercise really targeting what I think it's targeting? And you know, somebody shows you a new kind of row that this is great for the lats. And you're like, okay, let's do like five sets of this. I'm not used to it. Five sets is going to be overkill. And let's see where I get sore. You're like one time getting sore is not going to kill you, right? 
You do five sets and you get sore only in your rear delts and your biceps. Is that a good lat exercise? No. How the hell could it be? Because clearly your limiting factor muscles are the rear delts and the biceps. They're going to continue very likely to get the brunt of the treatment for mesocycles to come. And your lats are sure active. But like, you know, it's like somebody told you wide grip benching was good for your triceps because mechanically you do this, you know, like, yeah, but then you would do wide grip bench, your pecs would get destroyed, your triceps would feel almost nothing. And someone's like, okay, well, you know, can you imagine well, Mr. You know, Mr. Science read a couple PubMed articles and all of a sudden, you know, his client's like, I know we do wide grip bench for triceps, but my pecs get super sore and my triceps don't. What's he going to say? He's going to be like, well, soreness doesn't mean anything. No, dickhole. It does not mean anything. It's just not a guarantee of hypertrophy or a guarantee that you're not getting hypertrophy, but it can be used intelligently to at least know when you're doing plenty and a suspicion that you may not be doing enough. Like for example, if someone tells me, listen, I squats don't grow my quads. And I go, hey, have you ever gotten sore from squatting in your quads? I'd be like, no, I'll be like, okay, you're probably not squatting right. You know, because with 99 problems, most people have not getting sore quads from squats, just not one of them, if you're squatting correctly. So that's kind of my view. And of course, muscle damage, almost certainly is a U-curve relationship where not enough damage just correlates to not enough stimulus at the very least, but there is such a thing as too much damage. So you, you don't want to chase soreness, what you want to know about soreness. Um, it, it's almost like this, uh, this is a little bit of a stupid analogy, but um, you know, uh, if you, if you're cooking in a kitchen and it, the smell of the herbs you're roasting is like really pretty strong, that's probably a good sign that you're cooking things. But your mission in the kitchen is not to get the smell as much as possible because you just burn all the herbs, cooking them and smelling them and be like, we're done, here you go. And it's just a bunch of nothing, right? That's kind of stupid because you mistook the evidence for the product, right? But if someone's like, hey, I'm cooking, I promise. And you're like, I don't smell anything. They're like, nope, promise I'm cooking. And the, the burr's not on, you know, like, no, you're not cooking because there's got to be something going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that's a really good analogy. Um, that's perfect. I think you, I think you broke down that, that entire topic really well. Um, Sweet. The next I didn't thing finish I the fatigue part though. Yeah. You want me to get to that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, completeness and my, my paralyzing need for completeness of <laughs> once again. So, so here's the deal. There's uh, so we got that stimulus top side, right? Now we need the bottom side of the equation, which is fatigue. And there's at least a couple ways to measure fatigue. One is, is really super, very direct. It requires almost no experience, um, very little, just some honesty. And it is joint and connective tissue disruption. Right? And joint and connective tissue disruption means like, really fundamentally two things, very related. One, do your joints feel weirder than they do in other exercises, like in an unpleasant way, maybe in a painful way on this exercise or this technique or so on and so forth. And number two is, do they have that sense of weirdness or pain linger later and especially, especially compound over multiple weeks? Like if someone says, hey, do hack squats this way, like stand on your toes, <laughs> some idiot would say that. And, and, and you're like, great. And then like the first couple of sets, you're like, dude, my knees don't feel like, okay, it's a lot of knee pressure and tension, which is okay. It feels like not good pressure and tension in my knees. And they're like, nonsense, you're fine. You're like, okay, sweet. And then weeks, like week, week, week goes by and your knees hurt more and more and more until they're not just hurting during the session and after, they're hurting like when you wake up in the morning. Like, man, you know, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not the best fatigue uh, induction method or really this is the best fatigue induction method is too much fatigue. So just be aware of your joints. Like some people say like, hey, what's the best hand grip for my lats, is it this, is it that, is it that, is it this? Fundamentally, all those cause really tiny differences in lat activation that are probably just for nothing. Individual differences in how you're built and how your lats are connected and how they're shaped are gonna be way more important. What matters is, does this hurt your shoulder joints? Yes, 
try this. This feels great. Then do that, right? That's what we want to look for to minimize that joint connective tissue fatigue. We don't want to have this sort of like really bull in a china shop mentality where you see this with bodybuilders a lot where they're like wrapping their knees to leg press and you're like, does the leg press hurt your knees? They're like, yeah, a lot. Like maybe you should change the way you do the leg press. Nope. Just wrap them up. You know, it's, it's, it's like a really weird way to do things. So joint connective tissue distress is kind of our, a really easy signal. The next one is, uh, you know, does the, uh, target muscle, uh, or, or sorry, you know, does the training for the muscle, um, impose a uh, systemic cost to fatigue? In, in other words, does the, you know, when, after you train biceps in this new way you found out, how does performance on an unrelated muscle like your chest or your legs do afterwards, right? What are some really super high fatiguing exercises? High pulls, cleans, deadlifts, squats. Think about someone being like, hey man, I want to train biceps. You're like, sweet, let me just do this at eight sets of deadlifts first and I'll join you for your bicep workout. How's your bicep workout going to go after eight sets of deadlifts? You may just die during the workout and never show up to biceps. But if you do, you know, your one rep max could be cut by like 40%, right? If your one rep max is cut, cut by 40%, where is it cut from? Well, that's not cut because the biceps got fatigued during deadlifts. The biceps barely active during deadlifts if you're doing them right and you're straining your arms. So why the hell is your bicep curl so low? Because your central nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, and possibly even your cardiovascular system and some other systems were so messed up by the deadlifts, they are now the limiting factor. And unfortunately, what grows muscle is a local high tension generation close to failure. If your cap on that ability is central and, and systemic and not local, you're just basically doing the equivalent of training while you're hungover. Like you're like, oh man, I only got 10 reps at 185. Normally I get 10 reps at 275 in the squat because I'm hungover. But I went to failure, so it's still great training. No, it's not because your system limited you and your local muscles like, well, I guess we're just not getting any more juice today, right? It's like the message is just sending. So if you have an exercise that gives you a certain degree of stimulus, but after it, you're just beat up and your performance on other exercises sucks, you know, that's maybe fine. Maybe it's pay the cost to be the boss, right? But if you can get another exercise that is similarly stimulating and afterwards you're like, dude, I feel great and you have excellent performance on the exercise after, then, you know, that's probably a better exercise because most of us don't just do one exercise per week, right? Some exercises are so stimulating, you might be familiar with this with your own experience. They have a systemic fatigue component that lasts days. Like, uh, dead, deadlifts, for example, a lot of bodybuilders don't do heavy and people are like, why not? They're great backbuilders. Great backbuilders means it's absolutely correct. They have a huge stimulus component, but the fatigue component, especially systemic is so massive. How are you supposed to also train rows, also train legs, also train chest and back and everything else or chest and biceps when you are so beat up from deadlifts, you can barely keep your eyes open. Well, that's definitely a concern. So it's not that we want to get away from exercises that are really fatiguing in a systemic sense, we just want to be mindful that we're not needlessly doing exercises in a way that's too fatiguing for how much stimulus we get out of them. So put it another way, if an exercise really systemically fatigues you, it had better come with one hell of a stimulus component. It better be worth it. Bent over rows are, are pretty fatiguing, but oh my God, they mess up your back in the best way possible. Okay, fine, worth it. But if someone shows you this new way to do a bent row that just like beats up your joints and trashes you for the rest of your workout, but like you honestly don't get super sore or you don't get a big pump or you don't get a tension perception in your like most of your back, why in God's name are we doing this? Perfect example of an exercise type that has a, a relatively in most contexts, small stimulus, but great fatigue 
is maximum effort isometric holds. Can you imagine if your training was like putting 700 pounds on the bar and just like barely lifting it off the rack at knee height and just standing there for 10 seconds until you collapse and be like, what muscle does that work? Like sort of your traps, but 50 pound shrugs would do that better. Like, okay, how fatiguing is it? You're like, dude, it wipes me out. Like, what the hell are you doing it, right? So this is one of the big arguments for a high degree of range of motion because range of motion tends to provide less systemic fatigue and more local fatigue. And that's really what you want. If local fatigue is stimulative, systemic fatigue is not. And lastly, and this is super easy to cover, uh, the amount of systemic fatigue you generate has something to do with your rating of perceived exertion. If it takes heaven and earth to do an exercise psychologically, that's going to spill over your systemic fatigue and affect the rest of your program. So if you're doing like rack deadlifts and your buddy has to hit you in the face and you have to listen to heavy metal music and remember your terrible childhood, you do five crazy God awful reps. It's going to burn you out versus if you have another exercise where you don't have to get super psyched. And afterwards, if someone asks like, Hey, was that exercise tough? You're like, yeah, killed my muscle. But like, was it tough? Like for your soul? They're like, no, it was fine. Right. If that other exercise has a similar stimulus, it's way more worth it. Uh, and, and this is again, one of those things favoring bigger range of motion with concomitantly lighter weights. If you do a leg press, that's a huge, huge range of motion. Yeah. Your quads get super fucked up, but your soul doesn't get as crushed. Right. If you're doing partial leg press, you got to like, you know, you ever leg press so much partially I've done because I've been a stupid teenager before it takes like one or two seconds of you pushing the platform for the weight to even move. You're like, and then it gets going. Okay, here we go. You do these little eight reps. It's like, it's like a, a huge mind fuck and that will burn you out sooner or later. Another good reason it's like, um, uh, and this is several factors, but like imagine doing laterals with the 80 pound dumbbells, like for shoulders. Because again, to you right now, you can't do it. You just have to like cheat a lot. But like even psyching up to put your shoulders through 80 pound laterals of any technique, man, you got to like get pumped for it. But if you're doing 30 pound laterals, you just pick them up and start going. And yeah, everything gets tough close to failure, but it's just not the same amount of rating of perceived exertion. Usually that is concordant with how many muscles you use. And if you're using extra muscles, that's already bad from a systemic perspective. And how heavy the weight is absolutely, how much you have to get psyched up to do it. We're not saying don't do the exercise that you have to psych up for. We're just saying the psych had better be worth an awesome local muscular stimulus. I like that. I think it, it provides lifters with something that they can use to intuitively understand how to make more use of their time rather than just reading a paper and saying, well, this says I have to do this percentage of this exercise and I'm going to do it no matter what. And they don't listen to their own body. Um, so I like that. I think that gives people a good perception. One thing I've, I've been really curious to ask you about is your thoughts on periodization with all this. Um, you know, inside of bodybuilding and hypertrophy, there's a lot of people that kind of go both ways where periodization doesn't even matter. And then there's people that get hyper-focused on it um, and do the typical linear progression over time. Um, do you have a certain style you tend to go to, whether that's undulating where you're having like some high rep days and low rep days, you're progressing volume versus uh, linear load. Like how do you recommend people actually do uh, this efficiently and effectively for hypertrophy? Yeah, sure. So this is a really good question. Um, periodization is always and everywhere supposed to be something that emerges as a need from your training, not something you insert top down, right? Like, um, if we do classic strength power periodization, it, you know, nobody ever came along and was like, you know, if you do hypertrophy first, then strength second, then power third, you'll be great. They were like, you know, power training maximizes my power. But I noticed that my athletes, you know, if I'm a coach, let's say, I noticed that my athletes that just happen to be stronger tend to be more powerful, but power training itself just doesn't make you that much stronger. Let me try going away from power training for a bit 
and then just making them stronger. Then they made their athletes stronger for three or four months. Then they're like, all right, let's start power training and see if this milks it out. And they discovered, holy shit, the people that got stronger got way more powerful once we switched to power training. I'm going to start doing strength training blocks and then power training blocks after. It's going to be an awesome sandwich. And someone else noticed like, you know, athletes without a lot of muscle mass only get so strong. And imagine having like an athlete, like normally you train, let's say American football players. And you're like, you bring them in, you get them strong, then you get them powerful and go hurt people on the football field. And then, and then you notice you're like, okay, like some guy comes to you and he's like 125 pounds. He's going to be a wide receiver. Like motherfucker, you can just straight up die out there. First of all, second of all, man, how strong are we going to make someone that's 125 pounds and 5'11"? Like, you need muscle, right? So like, okay, you hold on. Everyone else start training for strength. You, you come with me, you train for muscle size. We get this guy bigger, put 10 pounds on his frame. Take that new muscle and make it stronger because we already know to do that. And then power and then voila, we just gave birth to modern periodization for strength power sport. But that's how it works. It works only because it needs to work like that. So when someone's like, I'm doing an hypertrophy block and you're like, why? And they're like, I don't know. That's what it says. Like, that's not good enough, man. You have to know why you're doing stuff. You know, it's almost like a stupid, uh, you know, kitchen analogies. You know, uh, why do people start with a salad sometimes? Or why, why do people start with an appetizer, right? Because like, you know, chefs have figured out that people like to eat a small, really stimulating portion of something and they most appreciate it then. And then they like their main course. Like if you flipped it around and you're like, oh my God, first I'm gonna have you eat like 10 pounds of pasta and chicken. And then after I want you to try these new egg rolls I made. Well, you're full after, the new egg rolls suck. Like, it's not like, oh, well the chefs have been doing like this forever. You're like, whatever, I don't know. I'm sure these were good when I was hungry, right? So the appetizer tastes amazing when you start and you don't have to fret about eating too much of it because you're like, okay, I know my main meal's still coming, right? Same idea. So when people say like, periodization doesn't matter for hypertrophy, then, uh, you know, at all, there's, there's no way to structure training. Well, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So what is the requirement for periodization for hypertrophy? Okay, first of all, we want to train as much as we can to benefit muscle growth. But we also know that when we begin with a certain number of exercises, we're not used to them. They have a huge stimulus component, but also we're very unused to them and they can very easily cause a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness and so on and so on and so forth that can hurt us. So we want to start with just a little bit of exercise enough to get us growing and going. As we get used to the movements, we're going to be able to add more and more and more. So there we go. There's your volume progression right there. Like used to be two sets got me sore. Now four sets don't get me sore at all. So what's the answer? Well, clearly, you know, like probably moving through the sets, you know, it's a no brainer. What about, uh, uh, the um, uh, reps in reserve, how close you go to failure. Do you have to go to failure? Absolutely, on the first week to get really good results. No, and the data is super clear about this. But getting close to failure works really well. And as your muscles become more and more resistant to growth every single week, you probably have to at least get as close to failure as you have been and probably even a little closer to failure to milk out all those results. Does the fatigue start to rise exponentially? Yes, but it's just the cost you have to pay. So now we know that we start at a lower volume, get to a higher volume, and we start at you know three or four reps in reserve and lower it until it's one or zero reps in reserve all the way at the end, right? Okay, so far so good. What else do we have? Load. Well, we have rep ranges to hit. We know that anything less than five reps is not a good idea because it's too heavy. Stimulus to fatigue ratio sucks. And anything much heavier than or much lighter than 30 reps is too many reps. Again, the stimulus to fatigue ratio starts to suck. So at the very least, when we have loading that's close to five reps or between 25 and 30, we can add reps or add weight, but we know that we can't add too many reps past 30. That's probably not best. 
So what we want to do is make sure that we just, uh, you know, add load as needed in order to make sure that our reps aren't trending out of their rep ranges at the very least. And you can say, why add reps? Well, if you don't add load or reps, what happens to your proximity to failure, RIR? You know, let's say you squat 100 kilos for sets of 10 on, on week one. On week two, you squat it again for sets of 10. Well, now hold up, like you could have gotten 12 at that point. So your RIR was three or four when you started. Now it's five or six. That's stupid. We're training easier and easier and easier every week. You want training every week to be at least as hard, probably a little bit harder. So you're going to have to add load or add reps. And we just discussed that there's a limitation to how many reps you can have. Let's put one layer into it. Again, five to 10 rep sets uh, accomplish a, a hypertrophy, probably favoring the faster twitch muscle fibers. But there's only so much of that training you can do. Imagine I told you, look, all of your training has to be like on average eight reps. You're like, okay, like legs, that's fine chest that's okay, I have no idea how the hell I'm going to survive that for back training and for shoulder training, are you out of your mind? It's going to be crazy. There's only so many laterals for sets of eight you can do until your joints fall apart. Say, okay, what about sets of 10 to 20 reps? Well, that's a really, really good robust stimulus. It, it trains the faster and slower twitch fibers really well. But at the same time, you know, there's something like for, especially things like hamstrings that, that is irreplaceable, like heavy training, uh, sets of five to 10 is just better. So, okay, maybe we have this other rep range that's even better on average, but you know, there's times for heavier training. What about super light training? Well, imagine that you have to train, uh, uh, you know, multiple times in one week, which is usually the case, even for the same muscle. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you train the same muscle and Monday you train, you refresh, everything's great. You train it super heavy. Wednesday, you train it in a moderate rep range, 10 to 20. You look at Friday and you're like, dude, if I train the 10 to 20 rep range again, I'm just going to be so, so messed up. And I don't even know, I might get hurt because I'm a little bit still fatigued. My joints still don't feel 100%, but your muscles are healed. You might be able to train again. What's the answer? Well, the 20 to 30 rep range stimulates the muscles. Look, probably not as well as the 10 to 20 if we're really like over the long term, but super well. And it doesn't really cost you much on the connective tissue side because it's so light. So now we have a justification for three of these rep ranges. Maybe earlier in the week, we can train in the heavy range. Midweek, we can train in the moderate range. And uh, later in the week, we train a little bit more in that light range. And even over the course of successive mesocycles, like, you know, a month of training here, a month of training here, a month of training here, um, within a training block, we might start training on average a bit more in the heavy range because we just don't need that much volume and our joints aren't super beat up yet. As we add volume, which is going to be required throughout all of those mesocycles, maybe we'll add a little bit more of that moderate rep range in the middle and a lot more of that high rep range in the end. After that, we take active rest or maintenance phase to really, really cool that off and rebegin the progression. That's basically periodization uh, 101 for hypertrophy variables. And as you can see, all of that is because of needs, not plans. We're not like, well, we should be doing this. Why? Well, because, you know, muscles get used to stuff and you have to do more. We can't train easier over time. We can't infinitely add heavy volume. Imagine we start with five sets of heavy squats, five to 10 range. And someone's like, well, in one training block for now, you should be doing 15 sets of squats in the five to 10 range. You're like, bro, can we negotiate? Can I do some lighter squats? And they're like, why do you want to do lighter squats? Like, well, I feel like I can do 15 total sets of squats in a week but five is probably as many as I'm going to do super heavy, maybe six or seven. Why can't I do five sets after that in the moderate range? Sets in the like maybe some leg presses too. And like, no, that's not how it works. Like that's the top down view. We don't want, we want the view to emerge from what's relatively obvious. And with all this, you're, I mean, you're, you're talking uh, as in most people listen to this, we'll be doing this too, is training probably each muscle group two to three times a week. Is there a difference between when you're doing all of this, is there a difference between which ones you want to do two times versus three times? There's always, there's this frequency argument all the time. And sure. 
I don't think it's as much of an argument as it needs to be. Um, totally. But where do you stand on that? I hate frequency. I'm against it. As a candidate for president in 2020, I'm <laughs> anti-frequency. Low, high, all of it. Um, so frequency is pretty cool because there's a lot of wiggle room. You just have to train a certain level of difficulty that's going to give robust growth from one session. See how long that takes the muscle to recover and then train again when the muscle's recovered, ready to do another hard training session. Like, you know, not terribly sore. You can perform at a high level again then you're good to go. And in some muscles, let's say we say that's four sets, okay? It doesn't have to be four sets. Let's say four sets. In some muscles like the biceps and the side delts, you could be ready to train again tomorrow from four sets. Uh, in some muscles like the hamstrings or glutes or quads, four sets might be you can only train twice a week. You know, it takes that long to recover. Fundamentally, we want to stick between our session minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable, close to our session maximum adaptive volume. Just sort of uh, you know, uh, in that area of as much muscle as you're going to grow in one session, because there is too little and there is too much. But that's big range. When you're starting a mesocycle, you can do as few as two sets per session and as many as five or six, and that's totally fine. And then your frequency really depends on your per session volume. Because if you do two sets per session when you start, you could do like four sessions a week, no problem, because you'd be healed, 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 healed. If you do like five or six to start, you might only be doing two sessions uh, in that four per week because it just takes you, you know, two to three days to heal for the next session. In a very broad range of contexts, that's totally fine, which is why we say in RP, our sort of like very simplified way of, of understanding this is, you know, most muscles should be trained two to four times per week. Can you train them more? Some muscles, definitely, they just have to be recovered and the volume per session has to be low enough. Can you train muscles? one and a half times per week, like a really hard session once and sort of a maintenance session later. Totally, it just has to be muscle that takes a long time to heal. And the amount of training at any one time is going to be a little bigger, but not so big that it causes too much damage and costs us growth. I love that. I think it, it, it ties in well with the stimulus to fatigue ratio and just paying attention to what is working, how your body is responding, how you're feeling days afterwards. And that can really give you the answer as to how often you should train. For sure. And that also ties into how much volume you should be doing. You know, people say like, hey, you know, how much volume should I be doing for my chest to grow? It'd be like, are you recovering easily from your current volume? Yeah, well then slowly start to do more. And then they say, I think I'm doing too much volume. You're like, why? Like, was I'm not recovering, my, my performance is falling. I'm sore all the time and I'm getting weaker week to week. Well, clearly more volume is not the answer. Almost certainly less is. So when people say like, listen to your body, I think a lot of people interpret that correctly because some people mean it like this. It's like this mystical thing of like, you know, home, like, you know what I'm saying? The universe will provide and shit. But really you're just listening for very distinct signals. Like, am I sore? Am I performing on track? Have I healed yet? How are my joints feeling? Am I getting a pump? Do I feel tension? You get all those together and that's something bodybuilders have been doing informally for years and years. It's really informative stuff and it probably goes a long way. Maybe not to perfecting your training, but if you're screwing that stuff up completely or you're totally ignorant of it, you could be shooting relatively blind. I think I could keep going on and on with you on this stuff. I love it, man. So I'm going to respect your time though. Um, before I do let you go, can you tell everybody where to find you? Um, I, I believe you have an upcoming book. I've been anxiously waiting for the hypertrophy book to come out. Keep so. anxiously waiting <laughs> uh, with, uh, unfortunately, the recent events and uh, yeah. uh, the global scale. We have some other projects that got bumped to be a little uh, ahead of time, uh, at-home training templates, for example, just to help folks out. I mean, these yeah. are strange times. But the book is still in editing, probably towards later in the end of the year. It's going to be published um, uh, scientific principles of hypertrophy training. But for now, uh, you can find us on YouTube. We're putting out a ton of good stuff on YouTube. Yeah. So Renaissance Periodization on YouTube, or just type in RP Strength, follow the channel. 
every week we got videos and videos and videos, examples. We had whole discussions on stimulus to fatigue ratios. We're picking apart common bodybuilding exercise people do not so great and we're making them do them better. We got sample workouts, all sorts of good stuff. So I would say Renaissance Periodization YouTube is really where to go. Yeah, I've been loving what you guys have been putting out there. So um, I agree. Thanks. I'll link all that in the show notes, man. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.